be in Romans chapter 6, going to continue on in the series we started last week called Habits, and I, I hope that you had good discussion about it in your small group this past week. And so last week we talked about the law of the harvest, the fact that we reap what we sow, and so the choices we make produce the outcomes. When we make a choice, we're choosing the outcome, and so if we want better outcomes, we need to make better choices. Now, I hope we saw last week that God has just interwoven that into the fabric of the universe, and that's how life works, and, and I think we do, and, and, and that sounds good, but I think it leads to another question, and that is, why do we struggle so much to make the right choices? Like, if we know if I make this choice, I'm getting this outcome, maybe say if I make a good choice, I'm getting a good outcome, if I make a bad choice, I'm getting a bad outcome. I don't think anybody's really going to argue that with me. Why is it so hard then to make good choices instead of bad choices? And, and I think there's more than one reason, but we're going to get into one of those reasons today as we really try to go in under the surface and get to the heart level of our outcomes and, and, and our choices. And so what we're going to talk about today is the idea that identity leads to activity. Or Craig Rochelle says it this way. He says, who before do? Who before do? So we really kind of want to get into the sur under the surface today. And so as we think about identity, let me give you a, a definition of it. And, 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 you know, this is a huge issue in our society today. Tim Keller says in our modern world, this is the only moral absolute, the idea that you can be whoever you want to be. Aren't we taught that from the time that we're little kids? Isn't that the message of our culture? You do you. You know, if you're going to be happy, if you're going to be free, you got to be who you want to be. All the way to the point that you can pick your gender out of a choice of hundreds of genders. I believe this is really what marketing is. I don't think, mar I, well, marketers are obviously trying to sell you a product, but really I think the way the marketers are trying to sell you a, pro a product is to convince you of an identity. If you buy this product, you'll be happy, you'll be cool, you'll be accepted, or maybe you'll stand out, you'll be beautiful, you'll be smart, you'll be connected, you'll be sexy, Wh whatever it may be, Marketers are playing on identity issues that this problem or that this, this uh, product solving a problem or giving you an identity that you want to have. So Tim Keller defines identity, and, and I think it's very helpful the way that, that he does it. He says that identity is self-understanding, meaning how we answer the question, who am I? So if somebody asks you that question, who are you? What would you say? Now, here's the thing I think we need to think about. I think we usually answer that question with something we do instead of who we are. Then you say, why does that matter? I mean, isn't what you do a part of who you are? Well, yeah, in a sense, but what if somebody said, Jimmy, who are you? And I say, I'm a pastor. But what if I'm not a pastor for some reason in a month? then I have an identity crisis. What if uh, somebody asks you who you are and you say, well, I'm a husband or I'm a wife, 
But at some point, you're a widow. Then you not only have grief, you have an identity crisis on top of that. So identity is how you see yourself, how you answer the question, who am I? But then he says it's also self-regard, meaning how do I feel about who I am? This is who I am, but you could say this is who I am, but then you could like or not like who you are. So that's kind of the definition we're going to work from. Now, last week I, I mentioned a book to you, and I, and I commended a book to you called Atomic Habits. It's been very, very helpful to me. You can see uh, an, an image of the, the front cover there. But when I recommend this to you, or when I recommend about anything to you, maybe outside of the Bible, that doesn't mean I agree with everything that's in it. Um, you know, I believe in the old adage of chew up the meat, spit out the bones. Um, one of the things that drives me crazy, I think is one of the biggest problems in our society today, is that we, so many people put themselves in these little kind of echo chambers where they only listen to the people who agree with them, and then they're uh, you know, throwing grenades at the people who disagree with them, and like everybody, you gotta be, somebody's all right, and you love this person, and somebody's all wrong, and so you hate that person. I think that's foolish. I think it's ungodly, unwise, I think it's a problem. Joe Biden is not all good or all bad. Donald Trump was not all good or all bad, but that's how a lot of people act. Just for an example. Not that I would meddle in anything. Um, <laughs> but I, I would say one of my core values as a person is simply learn from everybody and think for yourself. Yes. Now, I say that in regard to this book because, like I say, it's extremely helpful on a practical level. I don't know where James Clear is spiritually, but a lot of what he's teaching, uh, and I think I hope I showed you a couple things like this last week. Really, you can go find the biblical principle or Bible verse behind what he's teaching. Some of the things I think he says are untrue because they don't line up with Scripture. Some of it's kind of based on evolutionary theory applied to psychology and sociology and that kind of thing. But but some of it is helpful true to a degree, but it's more self-help, so there's limits to it. And he talks a lot about, and when people study habit formation, they talk a lot about how, how identity relates to habits. And so I want to share just a little bit from the book, and, and, and because there's some wisdom in it, but then I'm just doing this to kind of set this up and get us to Scripture to show you that as Christians, we have a whole lot better story than even uh, some wisdom that he gives in this book, okay? So he says this. He says, the ultimate form of intrinsic motivation is when a habit becomes part of your identity. It's one thing to say I'm the type of person who wants this. It's something very different to say I'm the type of person who is this. He says, true behavior change is identity change. You might start a habit because of motivation, but the only reason you'll stick with one is that it becomes part of your identity. Anyone can convince themselves to visit the gym or eat healthy once or twice, but if you don't shift the belief behind the behavior, then it's hard to stick with long-term changes. Improvements are only temporary until they become a part of who you are. And that makes sense. Once something's really a habit, it's kind of just ingrained within you. I don't know if I'd say it's fully a part of who you are, but it's at least a part of what you do. You know what I'm saying? There's very few days that I debate in my mind whether or not I'm going to the gym after work. It's just kind of 
part of my life. He says, your behaviors are usually a reflection of your identity. What you do is an indication of the type of person you believe that you are, either consciously or subconsciously. And I believe that's a biblically true statement. But here's an example that he gives. He says, take two people who are trying to stop smoking. And someone is with those two people together and offers both of those people a cigarette. One person says, no, I'm trying to quit. The other person says, no, I'm not a smoker. The first one is like, this is who I am, but I'm trying to be different. The second one is, this is not who I am anymore. Which one do you think has a better chance of long-term not being a smoker? So there's wisdom in this. But as Christians, what I want us to see today, if you're in Christ and if you're not, you can trust him and have a relationship with him, that as Christians, we have an infinitely better story and we can take an infinitely better approach. And that's what I want to show you from Romans chapter 6. But let me set Romans chapter 6 up by saying this. Instead of trying to become a certain type of person by changing our beliefs and habits, we need to see that if we are in Christ by faith, we have already been transformed into a new person by Jesus. And so we're trying to live like, more like who we already are in Christ. Do you get the difference? If you're in Christ, you don't have to try to become somebody different. You just have to live out of who you already are in him. You see, in Christ, we identify with him. That's what it means to be in Christ, that phrase that's used so much in the New Testament. And so our identity is defined by that identification. And the idea of sanctification or spiritual growth is becoming more of who we already are. And so this means instead of me trying to become the person I want to be, the guiding question of my life should be is how do I live like the person that I already am? Do you see the difference? Now I'm just setting this up right now. We'll get into this in more detail, you know, real practically as we read this. But what I'm saying is, and what Romans 6 is going to say to us, if you want it in a nutshell up front, in case you go to sleep at some point, here's Romans 6 in a sentence. It's vital then for us to see who we are in Christ. Count that to be true of us, of me, and then surrender to Jesus so he lives through us and we experience what he has done in us. This is how we actually live like a changed person, a new person in Christ. I mean, the idea is that who we are determines what we do as long as we believe and act on who we really are. Be, believing and living out of who we are in Christ empowers us to live like a new person. You see, we died to sin and were raised in the newness of life in Christ so we can live like a new person. Who before do? Who before do? So, Romans chapter 6. Now, if you go through the book of Romans, the first 17 verses are like an introduction. 
And then from chapter 1, verse 18, to the uh, chapter 3, around verse 20, it's, how, it's laying out that we're all sinners, that we're all under the condemnation of sin, whether we're rebellious, whether we're religious, we're all separated from God by our sin. And then from chapter 3, around verse 20, through chapter 5, it, it teaches us that justification, the way we're declared righteous, the way we're made right with God, is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And near the end of chapter five, Paul makes just an audacious statement. He said, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And that's good news because sin has abounded a whole lot in all of our lives. But the good news is the grace of God through Jesus' death on the cross abounds is greater, bigger, stronger than any and all of our sin. But then that raises a question. And I don't know if Paul was literally asked this question or Paul in his brilliant lawlerly mind was anticipating an objection. And, it, and, and the idea would be, well, if grace abounds, should we sin even more in order to experience God's grace? And that's the question he's answering at the beginning of Romans chapter six. And so, Here's what he says in Romans chapter 6, and really what I want to point out to you is three actions we can take to live like a new person in Christ. And the first one is, it has to do with knowing. We have to know who we are, know our position in Christ if we're going to live like a new person. You see, a lot of Christians are experiencing spiritual identity theft, now, I mean, you've heard of identity theft, you know, cybercrime, that kind of thing. That would be a horrible thing to experience. I mean, somebody basically taking over your identity, using you, stealing from you. But do you understand, when we don't know who we are in Christ, we're letting Satan commit spiritual identity theft in our lives, letting him take over, letting him use us, letting him take advantage of us, letting him steal from us. Do you know who you are in Christ? Well, who am I? Well, look at what the scripture says here. He says, this is that question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul's answer to this either question that was posed to him or this hypothetical question was, certainly not. And, and, and certainly not does not convey the force of the translation or, or, or does not convey the force of the original. Uh, it's the strongest negation that can be used in the, in, in the Greek language. He's essentially saying, ain't no way. And, and that's probably even a weak way to say it. He's like, absolutely not. God forbid that we would ever think that way. And then he answers the question with the question. He says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If we died to sin, how do we continue on in it? How do we even ask a question like that? Well, how do we die to sin? Well, he's going to explain that. He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus we're baptized into his death. Let me say something about baptism here. Is this talking about water baptism? I don't think so. Is it talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that 1 Corinthians 12 talks about? I don't think so. You have to understand the word baptize means to immerse or to place into another object. Who is doing the immersing? Who The object that's being immersed into 
all those kind of things depend on the context. Like 1 Corinthians 12 uh, says that the Spirit is baptizing us, is immersing us, placing us into the body of Christ uh, when we get saved. Uh, in, in many places in the, in the New Testament, the book of Acts is talking about someone being placed into water uh, as an outward symbol, uh, as a testimony of their conversion. Here, what it's talking about, I believe, says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ? What this is saying is at the moment of salvation, we were literally placed into Jesus Christ. We began to identify with him. Christ is in us. We're in him. We are now in a vital living union with him where all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen and now belong to us. And so in Christ, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. This literally happened to you at the moment of salvation. Then the point of water baptism becomes to confess this, testify to this, symbolize this. And so why do we believe that baptism is for uh, believers by immersion? Because believers' baptism by immersion is the only way to convey the actual symbolism and meaning of what is actually spiritually happening in our hearts. So if you're a believer who's never been baptized by immersion as a believer... I would encourage you to take that step of obedience because Jesus commanded it, Jesus modeled it, and because it's the way we make our public confession of faith in Christ, and it's what's necessary to demonstrate what Jesus actually did for you. You know, when someone, uh, you know, like we saw last, uh, last Sunday, is placed under the water, comes up out of the water, they're picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they're picturing what these verses talk about, how we've died to sin, been raised up in Christ to walk in the newness of life. That's baptism. It says in verse four, therefore we were buried with him through baptism uh, into death, that just as uh, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, the idea of this verse, you know, we think about Jesus being our substitute on the cross, and we should. That's what we just celebrated in communion. Jesus died for me. Jesus died in my place. Jesus died bearing my sins. But we need to understand that on the cross, he was not just our substitute, but we also identify with him. We're in him. We're in this vital union with him, meaning that whatever happened to him has now happened in us. So he died to sin. That means we're dead to sin in Christ. He rose from the dead. That means we're alive now in Christ. He says, knowing this, verse six there, old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So what this is saying, 
saying is that in Christ, we are dead to sin. That doesn't mean we're incapable of sinning. It just means that sin doesn't rule and reign over us. It doesn't control us anymore. On the cross, that power was broken. We're alive in Christ. We're identified with Christ. We are raised to walk in the newness of life, and we are freed from sin. So you put all this together. What this is saying is, here is our identity. We're in Christ. That's how God sees us. That's who we are. We're a child of God connected with Jesus, and in him, we are a new person who is dead to sin, alive in Christ, and dwelled by him and identified with him. Who you are is now defined by the fact that you're in Christ. Christ is in you. You've been made new. The old has gone away. You're a new person. You're alive. You're not dead anymore. You're not controlled by sin anymore. You're not dominated by sin anymore. You know God. God's your father. You're his child. This is who you are. And listen, that can't change or be taken away from you. If your identity's in your marriage, your marriage can crumble. If your identity's in your kids, your kids can rebel and go astray. If your identity's in your career, you can lose your job. If your identity is in success or whatever else, it can be taken away. But this can never be taken away. You see, here's the thing, and I think this is part of what's so powerful about this. And I'm just trying to make this real practical. I want to share some ideas from Tim Keller, kind of with maybe my own twist added to it. But he says something I think is so profound. He says, only in, in, in true biblical Christianity is your, idea, is your identity received. In every other system of thought, it's achieved. You see, according to what we read in Scripture today, we have an identity that is bestowed upon us by grace. In every other system of thought, it's something that has to be achieved, which is based on our performance. Now, what our society tells us is this is liberating. You can be who you want to be, but it can also be crushing. And this is what I mean. He talks about, you know, ways that... Um, you know, people view identity. And so the traditional way, if you look at, at history, that identity is, is achieved was through your family, through your society, your culture, and playing the role that you were supposed to play and getting approval from your family or getting approval from those around you in your society. If you study history, I think that's true. Now, some of you know why that's problematic. Because of your family. Right? You may be in a family where nobody could ever be pleased. You may be in a family that wants you to do all the wrong things. You may be in a family where you can never do enough. And you're bearing this crushing load of trying to live up to people's expectations that you can never seem to please. 
religiously. Here, here's what religion says. If you perform well enough, if you're good enough, if you follow the rules, if you do enough good, God will accept you and love you. What a crushing burden that is. In fact, it's an impossible burden because you can't ever be good enough. You can't ever live up to it. In fact, Andy Stanley's right. He wrote a book about it when he asked the question, how good is good enough? How do you ever even define that? Because usually the way we define it is better than somebody else. And see, that's one of the issues with an achieved identity is when we achieve our identity, it then leads to us looking down on people who aren't the same as us. See, if your identity is based on your performance, if you're not living up to your perceived identity, you're always gonna feel like a failure. When you do live up to it, you're gonna get proud and look down on other people. I believe, it's my opinion, that this is the source of a lot of the division in the United States right now. I'm a conservative, I have the truth, so all these liberals are horrible. I'm liberal, open-minded thinker. Can you believe these stupid uh, backwoods fundamentalists over here? If you achieve a certain attitude, it's gonna lead you to look down on people who are different than you. But you see the difference in being in Christ? If I didn't achieve anything, if I received it all, even if I know the truth, it's because God graciously revealed it to me. He opened my blinded eyes. He regenerated my dead heart. What do I have to be proud about? So I can accept people where they are, even if I disagree with them, and then try and love to share the truth of Jesus Christ because I know we're all in the same boat needing the grace of God. This is the most liberating thing in the world. But then he talks about the modern view of identity. Modern secularism is, once again, you decide who you want to be, and you go for it. But you know, the same kind of things apply. And see, this is something I think about. I'll just give an example of something I'm familiar with, something I've seen like um, basketball, kids' basketball, girls' basketball. Like, I, you know, I, I know some girls that their goal in life is to play college basketball, maybe play beyond that. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's great for kids to have goals, to be motivated, to pursue things. Here's the problem, though. When that becomes your identity, what happens when basketball ends? What happens if you blow your knee out? What happens if you're just not good enough? And with some of these girls, uh, you know, it's a bigger push from the parents than it is uh, from the kid. And so they're trying to live up to this expectation of their parent. And some of these parents just have no clue that they think their girls are a whole lot better than they really are. And so they're asking the impossible from them. What happens when it all falls apart? I'm just using that for an example. It could be academics. It could be music. It could be trying to look beautiful, you know, trying to be fit and buff. It could be anything. If your identity's in that, if you achieve it, you're proud. If you don't achieve it, you're crushed. How is there any freedom in that? Freedom is found in who before do. Freedom is found in knowing who you are in Christ and, and, and living out of that. And, and, and you can pursue things then. But if you're pursuing it in Christ, 
I mean, you might be happy when you succeed, but ultimately, you know, you received it. God gave it to you so you can glorify him and you don't become consumed with pride. And if you fail, you know that you're still loved and accepted and forgiven and you, a righteous man falls, but he gets back up again seven times because you know God is still with you and he's working all things together for your good. And there's a good end intended by the Lord. And so uh, it's a better story. Our identity is received by grace, not achieved by self-effort. And there's a verse, it's, it's Galatians 5, 26. And it, it says this, it's kind of hard to even understand, but uh, once again, Tim Keller helped me with this. He says, it says this, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And, and the word conceited um, in the Greek, it literally means empty of glory. Um, uh, Keller says a good way to translate it would be an old English way of saying it. Let us not become vainglorious. In other words, let us not glory in ourselves, but glory in the Lord. God forbid that I boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. But, but look at how this plays out. It says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, if the glory is in us instead of God, it ends up affecting our relationships because one of two things is gonna happen. We're either gonna provoke people, we're gonna think we're better than people, we're gonna look down on people, or we're gonna be insecure and not confident and uh, you know, then that skews our relationships as well because actually insecurity at its root is really a form of pride, not seeing ourselves as God uh, sees us. And you see, only a true biblical Christian living out of their new identity in Christ can actually be humble and confident at the same time because we can be confident in the fact that we're loved and accepted and we can do what God tells us to do, but we can be humble about it because uh, we didn't achieve it, we received it. It's by grace for the glory of God. And you see, the more secure we are, actually the more humble we can be. So th think about it this way. You know, if people say something like, you know, you preached a good sermon or something like that, that's nice, that's encouraging. And, you know, I appreciate it. I'm certainly not telling you not to do that. But I'm just saying that doesn't, like, move me a whole lot. Now, if somebody's talking about how it changed their life, that kind of thing, that really encourages me. But that doesn't really go to my head because this is like what I do. This is what God's called me to do. If it's any good, it's because he's gifted me to do it. And you can say it's a good sermon. I can probably tell you everything that was wrong with it. That doesn't affect me a whole lot because I guess I'm confident in it. Now, something I'm insecure about, that's a different story. Like, it's a well-known fact that um, I'm not uh, very mechanical, that you don't want me trying to fix something. Uh, I mean, like the, about the far reach of my mechanical skills is changing a flat tire. Beyond that, you know, I've never uh, accomplished anything in that way. But I think about a time last year when I fixed a minor plumbing problem at our house. I was excited. Nobody in my family seemed to be rejoicing with me, though. <laughs> I had a problem with this. I was like, give me a parade. 
just a small one, but I prayed, name a street after me. So I, I repaired something. I took care of, of something. And it, it wasn't, I wasn't thinking this because I was prideful. I was thinking this because I was insecure. You understand what I'm saying? So if we're not secure in who we are in Christ, if we're being vainglorious, they could lead to envying one another, insecurity. It could lead to, provide, to pride in provoking one another. Envying, provoking, and all this can kind of go together, you know. I mean, there's, there's things, this may sound weird to you. I heard somebody answer this question on a podcast. You asked me, if you weren't a pastor, like what, if you were just picking your career, what would you want to do? There's three things, and these are, these are weirdly eclectic choices. I'd either want to be the general manager of a professional basketball or baseball team, a Supreme Court justice, or in a rock band. <laughs> I love music. Everybody in my family's musical except me. It's not fair. I envy this a little bit, you know, uh, but I think if I were musical, if I could play the drums, uh, you know, if, if, if I could do anything, I'd probably be arrogant about it. So that's probably why God didn't give me the, or, you know, I think about, you know, Brian Myers was an intern with his priest here a couple times. Um, you know, when I go to the gym, my arms don't seem to get as big as his, you know what I'm saying? I mean, his arms are huge. It doesn't seem, but like, if I looked, if I had arms like his, I'd probably be preaching in a tank top. You know what I'm saying? I'd be like, instead of talking with my hands, I'd make a point and I'd be like this. Or so I'd look like Hulk Hogan up here on the stage from back. You know what I'm saying? So, and I'm being a little silly there, but maybe not too much. But you understand what I'm saying? When we're secure in who we are in Christ, we can be humble and confident. But when we're not, we're going to get out of balance in one of those two ways. So we got to know who we are in Christ. Now, that's the foundation step, and I've spent most of the time on that, but there's two other application kind of steps that we need to see in the last 10 minutes because you can know this, but if you don't act on it, it's enough. So here's the second step. The first application step is we can live like a new person in Christ by considering this to be true of ourselves. Look at what verse 11 says. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, the, the key word here is the word reckon. Now, uh, depending on where you're from and how long you've been in East Tennessee, this may be a confusing translation to you. Um, like reckoned, we don't, we don't say that a whole lot. Reckon basically means uh, to consider it to be true, count it to be true, place it to an account. Uh, you know, it's basically saying here, the first step is knowledge, the second step is faith. So if you've been around Tennessee for a while, you know, I remember growing up and being around on my grandparents' farm and, you know, some of the farmers being there and them having a conversation, somebody being asked a question, and to affirm it, they would say, well, I reckon, or I reckon so, or I reckon that's the way that it is. And that's basically what this is saying here. He's, he's laid out in, in the first 10 verses, repeating some form of the word no several times. He's like, no, this is who you are in Christ. And now reckon or consider it, believe it to be true. So 
If you're a Christian, do you believe it's true that your identity has been received by grace, that you're a new person in Jesus Christ, dead to sin, alive in him, and adopted, accepted, dearly beloved child of God? He wants you to believe that, to act on that, to live your life based on that. Well, how do we do that, though? Because, you know, we struggle with doubt. We struggle with self-doubt. We know we mess up. We're getting these messages around us in, in society that's saying be who you want to be. Well, uh, once again, Tim Keller says this. He says, we change by getting truth into our hearts. We change by changing what we worship. In other words, we have to consistently meditate on, think about, read, pray, sing these truths. In other words, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Here's how I do this. Almost every day, either when I first wake up or shortly afterwards, and sometimes it happens through the rest of the day, there's some, there's some verses I have memorized that I think about in my mind. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave, me, gave himself for me. That's the verse that guides my life. Uh, Galatians 2.20, John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Ephesians 1.3, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4. 19, my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For what we cannot do because we were weak in the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemning sin in the flesh. John 8, 31 through 39 says things like God is with me and God is for me and nothing can separate me from his love. And, uh, you know, I'm more than a conqueror conqueror in uh, Jesus Christ. In Luke 1 37, nothing's impossible with God. Ephesians 3 20, uh, you know, he, he's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever think, ask, or imagine. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Start your day just by focusing on who Jesus is and who he is in you and what he's doing in you. And, and just then begin to live out of that. Another way, some people do it, and there's a link to this in the notes, and it's something you'll talk about in small groups. There's some affirmations that come from Craig Rochelle that are in there. You can do it that way, but in some way, we have to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves, keep reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us and who we are in him, and live out of that. Who before do know this is who we are, and then reckon it, consider it to be true of ourselves, but we're going to have to continually remind ourselves of it if we're going to consider it to be true. And then there's another step in verses 12 through 14, that if we're going to live like a new person in Christ, we do it by surrendering our lives to him daily. You see, because we can know this, but if we're doing our own thing, living in our own strength, and we're not living surrender to Jesus, we're not going to experience him living through us. See, you know, this, this is not, div I mean, Jesus has done all this for us, but 
living it out requires some effort on our part. There's some commands here. Verse 12, he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Are we presenting ourselves to sin? Are we presenting ourselves to God? Something's going to rule over us. What are we surrendered to? Say, how, how do you do this day in and day out? Once again, it comes through meditating on Scripture. How, we change by changing the way we think. Change your thinking, change your life. Change your thinking, change your life. Think about yourself differently, and, and you'll live differently. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2, but the verse says, the verse before that says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. I do the same kind of thing. Uh, I have some verses that, that go along with this. Romans 12, 1 is one of them. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Hebrews 12, 1, and two talks about fixing your eyes on Jesus and laying aside every sin and weight uh, that hinders us. Colossians 1.18 tells us to give him the preeminence in all things. James 4.7 says, submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee uh, from you. Uh, if we get our minds right to start the day, then we got a way better chance of living it out through the course of the day. You don't have to do what I do, but find something that works for you to help you know, but not just know, but consider and surrender. So last week we said change the choices, change the outcome. But today we're saying we have to go underneath the surface of our choices to see our identity, and identity leads to activity, which leads to outcome, because who comes before do. But let's close by reading the last few verses here and see what the two possible outcomes of how we choose to live are. Verse 15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of, of, of obedience leading to righteousness? righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, uh, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you then have in the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he's saying is, uh, you know, we can reject Christ or we can not live out of this new, new identity. We can so to the flesh, we can live in sin. And what are we going to experience? We're going to experience bondage and shame and death. Or we can repent of our sins, 
place our faith in Jesus Christ. Trust him. Be changed by him. Literally become a new person in him. Factually, objectively, truly. And then as we know who we are in him, that we're dead to sin, alive in Christ, as we consider that to be true, as we daily surrender to him, the outcomes of our life are gonna go uh, from bondage and shame and death to, to freedom and holiness and, and, and life. He literally changes us from the inside out uh, because who comes before? do. So let me ask you this, and I want you to think about this as we close. And I'm talking to the people in the room, people are watching online. Are, are you in Christ by faith? If so, do you see your identity as in Christ? Or do you See yourself in some other way or are you trying to achieve some kind of identity or is your identity based on what other people say about you? I mean, do you believe you're dead to sin, alive in Christ, that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ lives on the inside of you and you surrender to him because the reality is if the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is on the inside of me. If greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world, then I don't have a whole lot of excuse that I'm capable of loving my wife like Christ loved the church. And I can lead my kids in the right kind of way. And I can love other people and minister to other people. And I can treat my body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. I can be a good steward of what he's given me. And, and, and I can uh, live my life to serve him, not looking for the applause of men, but with humble confidence, seeking that at the end of the day, to, my, that my goal in life is to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, as a response to the grace that he's given me. the who's right, the do will work itself out because we reap what we sow. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.